be reading tonight from, from the King James Version. Genesis, the first chapter, one, verses 1 through 5. I'm going to try this without my glasses. I may have to put them on. In the beginning, God created heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the water. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. You may be seated. Virgil, you really did well without your glasses. I'd hate to have to read that without my glasses. Now, you did that just exactly right. Thank you for the reading tonight. Thank you for this beautiful singing. Victory in Jesus, amen to that amen. One great day, we'll sing that song up there, Victory in Jesus. Without Jesus, there wouldn't be a victory at all, but because there is Jesus, there is victory tonight. can be for every one of us. Through our faithful obedience to the gospel of Christ and the faithful living of the Christian life. It's a great passage of scripture, Genesis chapter 1-1. In fact, uh, sometimes I like to compare the first verse of the Bible with the last verse of the Bible. Maybe we'll do that sometime in a series of lessons. The first verse and the last verse. The very first verse is telling us the creation of the world by the miraculous power of God. There, this particular uh, passage is one that is filled with a great deal of controversy. I was talking to a professor one time. I said, you know, this passage has a lot of controversy about it. He said, we'll find one that doesn't have controversy about it. Just go to Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God. Just look at the controversy about that. For several years now, brethren have asked me to come and speak on this subject. I do not claim any special expertise in the matter at all. But uh, I have, it seems like, for the last several years, gone to this congregation and gone to that congregation talking about this subject called Darwinism. And it seems to be, a, you know, a very popular subject. And when we naturally think of Darwinism, we think about evolution. And so I'd like to talk a little bit about that. I've been writing some articles in the bulletin on Darwinism. And I would like to present some material, some of the more modern discussion with regard to the matter of origins and what's going on out there in the scholarly world. And I thought, well, why don't I do that tonight? And I look forward to discussing it, though quite frankly, I'd rather be talking about the text of Genesis or the text of John chapter 6 or one of those great subjects, though this is a vital subject tonight. Uh, we do ourselves no favor by hiding our head in the sand and by acting like this subject doesn't exist. It surely does. Darwin was a naturalist. He was um, a person that was involved in the biological development and evolution of the world, the study of that. And if you look at the scholarly world today, you can look at uh, evolution from a number of different standpoints. There are a number of different varieties of it. You can look at it from the standpoint of chemical evolution. You can look at it from the standpoint of genetic evolution. 
But Darwin looked at it from the standpoint of biological evolution. And he's certainly not the first to come up with this idea. The ancient Greeks believed that man was an evolvement and that uh, animals would evolve from lower forms of life. But Darwin, when he went on that HMS Beagle, which was a voyage that uh, he was given the opportunity to go on by the, the English government, he began to study, and it's a very interesting uh, discussion and reading. He l- left a journal, and he would write about where he went. And it's interesting reading about the different things that he saw and the different people that he saw and the habits and the cultures of different people. But it's really when he studies and observes the differences of the finches and the Galapagos Islands and that kind of thing that he begins to notice this uh, matter of adaptation and survival of the fittest, that he called it, and he begins to write about it. And thus the world's thought has really changed. The Western world began to look at things completely different in a different fashion. And so I want to spend some time tonight uh, talking about Darwinism. Uh, there are several different types of evolution we could address, but we're going to confine ourselves to this discussion tonight. And even by confining ourselves to this discussion, we'll soon see that we'll not be able to do it justice. Uh, it is not our intention to rant and rave against it. It's not our intention to uh, preach. It's our intention to inform each one. And I have to say in the very beginning moments of my study tonight, the Darwin and his position of the evolvement of lower life forms into higher life forms is as false as it can be. But I'm going to do more with that than just assert it. I'm going to try to show and will show that Darwin begs the question. And certainly there is no scientific proof to verify the idea which he would have to have in order for there to be an evolvement from a lower form of life to a higher form of life, creating a new species from a lower species, a more complex form of life, and thus being the explanation of the origin of all things. Now, you and I have read already about the truth of the matter. It came to us from Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. But what shall we say of this doctrine which will not go away? which people seem to put so much stock and store in. Tonight I want to look at three issues, and I'll not be able to do them justice. I want to look a little bit about the background of Darwin. I learned a long time ago that if I can understand where a man's coming from, it puts me well down the road toward either refuting him or embracing the position which he uh, espouses. And then I want to give some uh, evaluation of Darwinism as Darwin's position is concerned. And then I want to look at some application. What's the church's response to matters such as this? So we've got our work cut out for us tonight. That's enough uh, warm-up pitches. Let's get right down to business. Darwin was trying to say, in no uncertain terms, that his position was the gospel. I don't care what you say, my species theory is all gospel. What he meant by that was, it's all true. Now, he didn't start out that way. He started out as a type of denominational Christian. He was the kind of um, uh, person. He was raised by his father, who was a doctor, medical doctor. He had a good education. He started out as a type of denominational Christian, baptized in the Church of England. Interesting thing, he's buried in Westminster Abbey. Westminster Abbey in London is a type of uh, church burial ground in a building. And all of the important movers and shakers of England are buried there. And uh, it's quite an honor 
to be buried at Westminster Abbey. I've been to Westminster Abbey, and I have seen the stone and the grave of Charles Darwin. And it's interesting that he, as such a uh, uh, naturalist and evolutionist, would be buried in this church building. But that's how it turned out. It's somewhat ironic to me, but he is buried there, and mainly because of the stature that he has received because of his writings. He had first accepted Paley's view of design. Paley was saying that uh, because of the orderliness and the beauty and the way in which this orderliness, these things coexist with each other, one can truly see design and purpose behind it, which would imply a a designer, which would imply a divine designer, which would be God. Now, that's a very simple explanation of Paley, but Darwin accepts that. Paley uh, argues strongly for the design argument a type of teleological approach whereby there is purpose and there's design behind all living things, that these things work together purposefully and in a wonderful, harmonious way. And um, that kind of idea was held by Darwin at one time. But yet certain things, the mood and the mind of man was changing and the the outlook of man was changing, and he was influenced by it. What was he influenced by One thing he was influenced by was higher criticism. Now, higher criticism is not textual criticism. You and I have been involved involved in an elementary type of way about textual criticism. We've looked at the text, and we have tried to see if the verb means this and if the noun means that and how does it relate to the sentence, and we've looked very carefully at those things. That's a legitimate pursuit. But higher criticism tried to come along and say, well, the Bible really wasn't written by inspired men. Uh, This particular guy wrote part of Isaiah, and then another guy came in and added to it. We'll call him Deutero-Isaiah. And then another guy came in and added to that, and we'll call it Tritso-Isaiah. And then many centuries later, a redactor or an editor came and pulled it all together and make it look like one continuous work. That was the work of higher criticism. It tried to deny the history of the Bible and tried to find discrepancies in the Bible and tried to say that the Bible, you see, was kind of a, an evolvement, a development. Deutero-Isaiah added to it, Tritso-Isaiah added to it. The fact of the matter is when we discovered in 1947 the Isaiah scroll, it was all one long continuous work. There weren't any Deutero-Tritso-Isaiahs to it. It was just all Isaiah, which sort of killed the idea of Isaiah and this higher criticism. Well, they did that to all parts of the Bible. And he was influenced by that. And I'm trying to understand, why did he say something like this? My theory, my species theory is all gospel. Well, you see, men began to think this way in early part of that century, and they were trying to discuss it from that standpoint, change and involvement. Well, he was influenced by another philosopher by the name of Spinoza. Spinoza was a pantheist, that the world is God and God is the world. And if you ask him, well, is there a God? he said, say, yeah, there's a God. The world is God, and God is the world. Albert Einstein was asked one time, did he believe in God? And he said, I believe in Spinoza's God. And what he was saying was, I believe in the God being the world. It's a pantheistic uh, uh, view. 
And then he was also influenced by David Hume. David Hume was a Scottish skeptic, and he's a very popular philosopher. And all atheism, agnosticism, really today goes back to David Hume. And David Hume was saying, well, we cannot know these things. He was a, a sort of gadfly and that he was always trying to doubt, to doubt, to doubt. And Hume is influenced by that. But there's another element that really falls into the background of David Hume. And that's the biblical doctrine of hell. He just didn't believe it. He didn't believe in the doctrine of hell. Much of that came to the front when his daughter died. And when his daughter died, he's filled with such grief over this particular matter that he just couldn't reconcile the idea of such a perfect girl. And she was, I'm sure, a wonderful girl, a young girl who passed away. And it was a great tragedy that uh, there's got to be a, a heaven and there's got to be a hell. This doesn't make any sense. So by the time that he goes on the beagle, he's very much a type of deist now. As he begins to look at the natural world, and the deist is trying to say, you know, God created the world, but he created these natural laws and they're fixed natural laws, and God's kind of left the world and left the world up to the natural laws. And it's really the natural laws that run the world. It's the natural laws that God put in place. You have a natural law like gravity and that sort of thing, and, and God put those laws in place, and now they have control of the world. God doesn't have any control over the world. He's left the world. He's a deist. By the time he goes through and discusses this particular matter and runs it over in his mind and then writes, uh, uh, writes his book about uh, the origin of the species, 1859, it's not but a few years after that that now he's agnostic. And he says, I really just don't know whether there is a God or not. This is the background. I think generally, he said, and more and more as I grow older, but not always, that an agnostic would be the more correct description of my state of mind. An agnostic is a person who's saying, I don't know if God exists or not. I just don't know. I don't know if he does exist. I don't know if he doesn't exist. We just don't know whether God exists or not. I'm agnostic about the matter. You see, a theist would say, I know that the God of the Bible does exist. But an atheist would, on the other hand, say, I know that the God of the Bible does not exist. But an agnostic would say, well, I don't know whether he exists or not. The evidence is insufficient to prove one way or the other. He is making that kind of knowledge claim. I know that there's not enough evidence to say one way or the other whether God does exist or not. But that, of course, is untenable as well. But that's another subject. The only real reasonable position to take is a theistic position. I know that the great God of the Bible does exist. But this is where he's at right now. He's in an agnostic position. He is not an atheist. His position is that the mystery of the beginning of, the, of all things is insoluble by us. It means we can't understand how it got started. And, for, and I, for one, must be content to remain an agnostic. So we'd have to be correct and accurate in our saying uh, Darwin was not an atheist. Darwin was an agnostic. But Darwin also said, you can't be a theist and hold to my position on species. Uh, you can't be a theist and say, I know that God exists, and at the same time hold to this position that new species arise from lower forms of, uh, of life. And so that helps us with the background. But I want to understand something of evaluating uh, the position which he has. And so before I do that, and the bulletin article that I wrote for you this week really focuses on this point, a definition of terms. The focus has always been on change. 
And prior to this particular point in time, all the great thinkers of the Western world looked upon change as having a purpose. There was a reason for change. There was a reason for this and a reason for that, and if there was change, then it had a purpose behind it and it had a design behind it. But Darwin comes along and says there was no purpose. It was all a matter of change. And two important words come to our attention that we must define precisely. The first one is microevolution. Microevolution is adaptation and change within the species. Here, microevolution is trying to say over a short period of time, you know, you can have a change here and a change there, which creates variety within the species, but it's still within the species. Now, he's talking change is more important here than just change itself. Mountains change and people change and the weather changes and all kinds of change takes place. But we're talking about a different kind of change now. We're talking about a genetic kind of change, an adaptive, selective kind of change, which begins to create within a species a new variety. For example, we have uh, the cockapoo, which is a funny-looking little thing. My kids love those little dogs. But when I was growing up, there wasn't any such thing as a cockapoo. It's the result of selective breeding and genetics, and breeders have come together to bring about a new kind of dog, and it's the cutest little thing you ever saw. But uh, when I was a kid growing up, there were no cockapoos. But now you see them, and people love them, and they're wonderful little pets. The point that I'm making is it is a change. That new variety has come up, but it is still a dog. It started out with dogs, and each kind produced after its own kind, and they produced by selective breeding a new variety within the species. Or we might talk about the navel oranges. Southern California was the home of navel oranges. And everybody talked about it. And as you go through Southern California, you're going to see grove after grove of orange trees. But navel oranges are kind of um, a genetic change, which has been brought about by those who grow oranges. But it's still an orange. Or you might talk about Charlet cattle. Charlet cattle is kind of a different kind of cow. It's all white and a beautiful herd of cattle, all white out there on the, um, on the pasture. But yet, it's simply due to selective breeding and the changing within the species. It is microevolution. I don't know of anyone who would deny or disagree with that kind of evolution. Microevolution. Microevolution is a change of variety within the species. The gene pool changes, and a new gene is added to the gene pool, and for that reason, a new variety develops over time, but like still produces after its own kind in microevolution. But then you also have macroevolution, and that's the word on the right side of your screen. And this macroevolution is quite a different situation. George Gaylord Simpson, uh, professor uh, and uh, geneticist, evolution is a fully natural process, he says inherent in the physical properties of the universe by which life arose in the first place and by which all living things, past or present, have since developed divergently and progressively. You notice what he says there. This explains macroevolution, how life came to be. We're in the field of biological evolution here. And in this particular instance, they're saying it came from lower life forms. And ultimately, I guess you would press him to say, did it come from one single cell? Well, ultimately, they'd have to say that. It came from lower life forms and thus in turn grew 
and by adaptation the feature stuck and now we have a new species. It comes from a lower life of simpler life form to a higher more complex life form and a new species altogether has been created. Well this is what they're saying and I'm going to talk a little bit later and I have to hurry up with this I know because I get to talking about these things and my time gets away from me but just because they saw it happen in microevolution does not prove it happens in macroevolution. Simply because they could see these subtle changes and new varieties within the species arise does not mean that that kind of thing can happen with regard to new species altogether in the world in which we live. Let me give you an illustration. And I think the illustration will help us understand what we're up against and will help us with the evaluation. Uh, let's say that uh, the bird is there and the bird has wings in order to fly. But the scientists would say the bird doesn't have wings by means of purpose. He has wings by means of random variation and mutation. He didn't get these wings. He doesn't have a purposeful need for these wings. But by random chance and by random variation, they came about. Now, he started out really as a lizard. And the lizard would go along, and some lizards began to be hatched out that have feathers. But they don't have any wings. And over centuries of times, thousands of these creatures are hatched out, and all with slight different characteristics and variations. Some of them have eyes that bug out, and some of them have big warts on their feet, and that kind of thing. But the gene that really begins to stick is the gene that grows the feathers. And now their appendages begin to grow a little larger and they begin to flap those appendages that now have wings. We find as we study this particular odd creature that over millions of years the new winged feathered creature is able to get better food. It's more adapted to getting better food and going about fleeing from its enemies in a more efficient way and thus through this particular matter of uh, natural selection the new gene begins to stick and the new creature begins to thrive over against the non-flappers who died out. So in that particular regard, the lizards now that began to grow feathers and rather large appendages, by pure accident, lucky accident, not according to any particular plan, began, these changes began to occur randomly and they stay with the new creature and it thrives. This is macroevolution. This is what I agree with totally, disagree with totally. I agree with the microevolution. The macroevolution is false as it can be. And I'm going to point that out as I begin to continue into this response with regard to the matter of Darwinism. Darwin tries to say over long periods of time, that this particular thing happens and because it is an advantage to the species the matter by means of adaptation sticks and now we have a different species altogether. But given the limitation of the scientific method how would we ever know this? Given the limitation of a means which is hampered by and limited to observation, experimentation and verification how would we ever know that this actually took place? Given the limitations of the scientific method. Now, don't get me wrong here. The scientific method has produced some wonderful things. 
I mean, we've landed on the moon, we walked around, we came back. The scientific method has given us some wonderful things, but we're going to have to admit that there are limitations to the scientific method. It is based on a type of reasoning called induction. And with induction, you never can really know because there might always be some new piece of evidence out there that might come along and change the entire theory or the entire principle altogether. And all we can say at best is, we think it's this way right now, but there might be something out there in the future that changes everything. Other pieces of reasoning are called deduction, whereby we can know that this is true and it's always going to be true, regardless of what might be found out there. But right now, with regard to the limitations of the scientific method, we're going to have to recognize it for what it is. It is not the golden calf the world wants it to be. The end-all, answer-all, cure-all of all the ills and wonders which we face. It is limited to what can be observed. It's limited to the evidence that can be gathered and assimilated and thus interpreted. It is limited to re-examination and experimentation of that evidence and the verification and replication of it. When this particular finding is made, then another group of scientists work on that and they verify that and they replicate that and they say, well, I don't know whether that's exactly right or not. We found it to be this way over here. That's science. But evolution is not science. This macroevolution is not science at all. Robert Jastrow calls it more of a move of faith. <clears throat> Theodore Thomason, Thomasian makes an interesting statement that I found, and I wrote this down. He says, people who go about talking about evolution, this macroevolution, being a fact, he calls them, it's more of a con job. Those who go around teaching it as a fact are con men, and more of a guessing game. And a figure jangling game. Now what he means by that is all the millions of years. And they start jangling around with all these millions of years and bouncing all over the place with the millions of years of this and the millions of years of that as if that gets them anywhere. The point of the matter is it's not scientific. And it's certainly, we certainly should not be browbeat by evolutionists trying to say to us, we're science, we're scientific in this matter. It is not. Let me add another point to this. We'd have to say that the reason that this position is false is because it begs question. Now, you can beg the question in a number of different ways, and keeping with the way I do things, I've got every, way of, every possible way you can beg the question listed down here on my notes. And I'm not going to try to bore you with all of that logically tonight, but you can do it in a number of ways, but I'll tell you how they do it. How do you beg the question? You can beg the question by defining an expression in terms of itself, and they do that. In other words, a good man is a man who is good. Mm, well, okay, but you haven't told me what a good man is. Or, you can beg the question by affirming a proposition as being true without ever proving it to be true. You just assume that it's true, but it hasn't really been proven. In other words, students of the Bible don't need to waste their time studying literature, philosophy, and fine arts. Before you can really prove that to be true, you'd have to prove that it's a waste of time for them to do that. It's merely an assertion to say it's a waste of time for them to study that. You'd have to prove that it's a waste of time. They beg the question. 
It is a type of situation where I'm assuming to be true what must be proven to be true. Evolutionists do this all the time. And then here's one. It's a begging of the question in that it reasons in a circle. The doubtful issue is evidence and used for support. And that doubtful issue of evidence, of course, needs to be proven. For example, here's a classic reasoning of the circle, in a circle. We need more automobiles, okay, on the road, because we need more tax money so that we can build more roads in order that we might have more automobiles. A reasoning in the circle. Now, I don't know why anyone would reason that way. That's why I thought up of that ridiculous illustration. But at any rate, that shows us how they reason. I'm trying to stand, evaluate the thinking process of it. I'm not a scientist. I have to depend upon the scientists to discuss these matters and to give us the information and the data. But I, when all the data is gathered, we're going to have to reason about it properly. And I'm saying that the reasoning about it is fallacious. It is a gigantic begging of the question. And then here's one I like, and I've seen this in evolutionary writings and that kind of matter. The issue under consideration has not been settled. You imply that it has been settled, and then you move on to a secondary issue. It's sort of like the fellow says, I want to borrow your car for this weekend. And you say, no, you can't have my car. And so I leave that issue, and I say, well, what kind of gas do you want me to put in your car when I borrow it this weekend? You see, there's a primary issue here. I'm not going to let you borrow the car to begin with. So why go to the secondary issue of what kind of gasoline you want in the car or you're going to put in the car? Evolutionists reason this way. Here's how they do it. This matter of transformation of species is a fact. Oh, really? Where's the fact of that? There is no evidence of such a change. No one has ever directly or indirectly observed. Now, let me emphasize that fact. No one has ever directly or indirectly observed the evolution of any human being from a former, former life form <clears throat> to a higher life form. No one has ever written about it. No one has ever written, yeah, I saw that one time. No one has ever seen that take place. It has never happened in the laboratory where a lower form of life actually transformed into a higher form of life. But yet they beg the question by saying it happened. It happened over million, millions of years ago. It happened over all that time. But yet there's no ev evidence of it whatsoever. No evidence. We just assume it's going to be true. I was in a public debate with one of these fellows. I've been in more than one public debate with these fellows. Down in San Antonio, Texas. Auditorium was full of people. And he gets up and he says, Now, if you will just grant me the assumption that the world is 20 billion years old, then we will go from there. And I got up after that and I said, Dr. Scherning, I'm not going to grant that. Because I don't believe that. And I don't believe you have any evidence to prove that. You see how they try to beg the question. If you'll just grant me this, then naturally... I will go on and be able to prove my position. We don't beg the question. We're not going to reason in a circle. Darwin admits the geological assuredly does not reveal any such finely graduated organic change. And this is perhaps the most obvious and serious objection which can be urged against the theory of evolution. That's in Origins, page 152. He's saying the rocks really don't prove it. The fossil record does not prove it. 
And so, in turn, we see from that standpoint that there is no evidence for it. I'm objecting to it by means of the way it reasons falsely. They want to assume it to be true and then build a case. But it's a house made out of cards because the case cannot be assumed to be true. There's no evidence for it. I love to talk about the fossil record here, and this is about where I bring that matter in, but I want to talk about microevolution does not prove macroevolution. Here's another aspect whereby the evolutionist makes his mistake. Darwin makes his mistake. The general theory of evolution, the organic position, whereby they assert that the lower forms of life produce the higher, more complex forms of life, all by means of pure chance. He tries to make the case for that particular matter because we see it happen over here, therefore it must happen over there. If these little small changes can be made over a short period of time, surely that's going to add up to great big changes over a long period of time. So if it happens in microevolution, that must mean it happens in macroevolution as well. But that is not what the evidence produces. The fossil record is the only physical evidence of what actually did occur as opposed to what might have happened in the past. However, the last 140 years of the geologic study has not been favorable to Darwinism. Evolutionists need a transition fossil. That is an immediate form of the fossil record, whereby you're actually going from a lower form of life to a higher form of life. And it is simply not there. Here, this particular evolutionist, Sir Frederick Hoyle, uh, is well known in England. He's one of the great scholars of the Western world. The evolutionary record leaks like a sieve. That's his evaluation of it. He's at least honest in the matter. There is no evidence of this. Simply because it might happen in microevolution does not mean it happens in macroevolution. No new species are being brought about through transformation. The fossil record doesn't show anything about that. That's the only concrete demonstrable piece of evidence that they have. And that works against them. Stephen Gould, the extreme rarity of transitional forms in the fossil record persists as the trade secret of paleontology. A paleontologist are the bone people. They study these bones and they study the background. And every one of them is an evolutionist. And every one of them is saying this evolved from that. But here's a trade secret that they don't want you to know about. There are no transitional forms. They don't have them in the bones. They don't have them in the fossil record. The only demonstrable piece of evidence they have is the fossil record of what actually happened in the past, but that is not there on their side. Therefore, you're seeing a lot of your modern-day evolutionists give up ship on Darwinism. They're jumping ship and going to what is called a punctuated equilibria, whereby there were large forms in big jumps. All, these all were are, uh, created or transformed all the time. Then or another period of billion years. Now you have another set all formed in that period of time. A punctuated equilibria, and it's a rather weird philosophical system, and I'm thankful that the God of the Bible revealed the word of God in understandable language, and I don't have to study all that. Why do they believe it? Why do they believe it? They've been brainwashed. Now, they've been brainwashed because everybody believes it, so naturally I go on board, and I believe it as well. 
Darwin and his Origin of the Species, 1859, was not the first to think this view up, but he's certainly given credit for the matter. His book sold over 1,000 copies the first day that it came out. The Scopes trial was conducted in Dayton, Tennessee, which I was involved in a discussion in that very courtroom a number of years ago. That trial took place July of 1925. There's a picture of me getting up there standing for the God of the Bible in that courtroom where Clarence Darrell and um, uh, Jennings Bryant uh, uh, discussed these particular matters. And yet these kind of things where John Scopes was a high school teacher and he violated the Butler Law, which in Tennessee said you will not teach any theory that holds man has descended from a lower form of life. And yet he did that and the trial became a very famous trial. We still think about it and talk about it today. Plays are written on it and movies have been uh, done about the matter. These kind of things like media, public school systems, that kind of thing, sort of brainwash the generation into thinking. It's got to be this way. We evolved over long periods of time. Intimidation. Intimidation is one of the ways in which they try to get us to believe this false notion. H.J. Mueller is a uh, geneticist, a biologist. He got 177 biologists to assert that evolution, the organic means of um, Development is a scientific law as firmly established as the rotundity of the earth. Well, I want to be a smart guy too, okay? And I like to be looked upon as being very intellectual, a very smart guy. So these smart guys are saying that, and so it must be true. You say I'm intimidated by the influence that they have in this particular regard. Why do they believe this? I believe that they accept this particular view because of the religious confusion that's out there in the world today. Now, brethren, if we could just get people to drop all the trappings of man-made religion and go back to the Word of God and do what the Word of God says, believe what the Word of God teaches, then, of course, we could be united in our efforts against every false way, not only this matter of Darwinism. Just because there is religious confusion does not mean the original is faulty, simply because... The original is there, does not mean a departure from it is what ought to be more modern and more eye-catching. Let's go back to the original, and let's get rid of the religious confusion. And if you look at the religious confusion that's out there in the world tonight, between Christianity so-called, the Islamic world, why Buddhism, Shintoism, all of the religions throughout the world, if we, let's get rid of these man-made religions. Let's just go back to the original. And that way, we'd be united and be pleasing in the sight of God. But because there is such confusion of the matter out there, people have opted as for this view as probable cause for the creation and development of man. But I think this is it. Why do they believe it? I think this is the answer right here. They don't want to have to face God on the day of judgment. They want an avenue of escape whereby I don't have to face up for the things which I've done in my life. I can do whatever I want to, and I don't have to be held accountable for any of it. That's what they want. They want a system whereby we can do whatever we want, we can think the way we want, we can live the way we want, and we don't have to be held accountable for anything or to anybody. Therefore, let's escape any form of responsibility before God. Because when I postulate God, now I'm saying I'm going to be held accountable to God for what I say and do. I'm going to face God in judgment one great day. 
And I don't want that. So let's come up with an idea. Let's come up with an alternative. And that's what you have. Darwinian evolution. Darwin. Well, let me tell you this right now. There is a great God in heaven just as sure as I'm here and just as sure as you are here. Who is the creator of our bodies and the creator of our souls. That's going to hold us morally responsible for how we live our lives. That we're going to stand before him in judgment one great day. As Paul would say, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. We're going to tell people about the great judgment of God and how that he's going to hold us responsible and how that we failed in that regard. We need to repent of our sins and confess our faith in Jesus Christ, the Savior of our souls, and to be baptized into Christ for the remission of our sins. That's God's plan for our lives. And we can escape the destruction that is going to come due to the grace of God and man's obedient faith. Now that makes sense. This other does not. And I urge you to reject the macroevolution view and accept the fact that God does exist and that he's the creator of our souls. And I pray you do it tonight. Won't you come while together we stand and while we sing.